The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website, northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. You'll find Exodus chapter 5. That's where we'll begin this morning. Our lead up to Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments we began a couple weeks ago with uh, noticing God's incredible sovereignty in Joseph's life and how God used his slavery and his imprisonment to put him in a place where he would have the opportunity to save the lives of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, including his own family who eventually moved to Egypt so that he could care for them. Last week, we learned that even though things were initially great uh, while the Israelites were in Egypt, over generations, the Egyptians grew nervous of their population. And Pharaoh at that time, who didn't know Joseph, enslaved them. That didn't stop God from blessing them, though. But it did make their lives so harsh and, and difficult and bitter but God knew that, and God saw that, and God remembered his covenant that he had made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God took action, and so he came down, and he appeared to Moses at the burning bush, and he called Moses and commanded him to go back to Egypt and deliver the Israelites from slavery, and after a while, Moses agreed, <laughs> and he and Aaron met and went back to Egypt and told the elders of Israel what had happened. And they believed God and they worshiped. And that's sort of where we left off last week. Today, we're gonna to see how God delivered the Jews from Egyptian slavery. And it's a story of God's power, a story of God's judgment, also a story of God's mercy, all rolled into one. And if you picked up a bulletin, you saw the, the focus statement was in the midst of destructive judgment. God mercifully delivered those who trusted him. Before we begin, I want to just give an overview of what's happening because it will help us. Um, this destructive judgment that we're talking about today, we, we call the 10 plagues of Egypt. Uh, these are 10 disasters that God brought upon ancient Egypt. And we might read through the story in 30 or 40 minutes, but it took a lot longer than 30 or 40 minutes for these things to happen. It was not even 10 days, but probably nine months that it took for these disasters to play out over Egypt. Uh, the first plague likely began in the summer, our July or August, uh, because that's when the Nile River was in its flood stage, and that will be important with the first uh, plague. The seventh disaster would have been in our January, because that's when the barley was ripening. And then finally, we know the 10th plague is in the spring, because that's when Passover is celebrated. So we're going to cover about nine months in today's sermon. And I was sort of thinking, hey, if we can do Joseph's whole life in one sermon, nine months will be a breeze. But I want you to think with me before we kind of get started. Obviously, God could have delivered the Israelites in one afternoon. He could have just snapped his fingers and they would have been out of Egypt. So why go through nine months of this? Why go through all these disasters and take so much time? Well, it was because God was not only delivering his people. He was also delivering 
judgment upon Pharaoh and demonstrating his power over every other so-called God. It was judgment against Egypt for the way they mistreated Israel and also for their idolatrous worship and just complete lack of humility before him. I want to read a few verses kind of throughout the story before we start to show you the judgmental aspect of this. Look at Exodus 6, 6. God said in Exodus 6, 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. This verse is, is good in that it gives us sort of both sides of the coin. It was redemption for Israel, but that redemption took place because of great acts of judgment upon Pharaoh and upon the Egyptians. Um, look at Exodus 9, verse 14 through 16. Exodus 9, 14 reads, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This was stated by God to Pharaoh after the sixth disaster. Six disasters and Pharaoh is still not softened yet. He is still hardening his heart and not uh, letting the Israelites go. But in that we see God's sovereignty. What we read here is that God raised up this stubborn, hard-hearted king so that God could show his power in the earth. And the Egyptians and the Israelites and everyone who ever reads this story will know there's no one like Yahweh. When the, Egypt, uh, when the Israelites finally started the Canaanite conquest, the people in Jericho, they were afraid because they heard what God did in Egypt. And now here we are thousands of years later and we're still talking about it. This showed God's power. There's no one like God. Since there is no one like God, how foolish and how evil is it to worship something else? So look at Exodus 12, 12, which may be the most important verse in the whole story. Exodus 12, 12, this is before the 10th and final uh, plague. God said, Exodus 12, 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, listen to this phrase, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. This verse is so important because we need to understand that these disasters as we go through them today, they were not random. God is not random. He's not uncalculated. He is very strategic. He is brilliant. And so these plagues that did work to deliver Israel from slavery were also carefully selected and ordered and orchestrated to specifically attack some of the false gods and goddesses that the Egyptians worshipped. 
These plagues are going to show how powerless these idols were and prove that Yahweh alone is God. So there's a lot going on here. There is redemption. There is judgment. There's power. Um, so with all of that established, let's go back to chapter five and, and let's see how it all unfolds. It'll be a lot like that story in Joseph's life. There are going to be some times we read and there'll be some times that I summarize Moses' first encounter with Pharaoh is in Exodus chapter 5. Let's read the first nine verses. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they might labor, uh, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. We'll stop there. Back in the first verse of the chapter here, Moses' demand to release the Israelites is so important that it is the first time in the Bible where the phrase, thus says the Lord, is used. I found that really, really interesting as I was studying for this sermon. Here is the birth of this powerful phrase that just about every prophet who followed Moses would say when he was sent by God to the people, he is not speaking his own message. He is not giving his opinion, but he would say, thus says the Lord. This phrase was born in the Exodus. Moses marched into Pharaoh and he said, this is what God says. Pharaoh didn't care, did he? Pharaoh said in verse two, who's the Lord? It's a pretty condemning phrase. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Now I want you to notice that throughout this section, the word Lord is in all capital letters. And I know most of you know that means that this is specifically the name Yahweh. Pharaoh is not asking who is a Lord or what is a Lord or what is a master or um, why should I obey any so-called God the Egyptians believed Pharaoh was a god. So in Pharaoh's mind, he is saying, why should I listen to some Yahweh God who is the God of people I have enslaved? He's obviously not much of a God. Why should I listen to him? Boy, that's arrogant and dangerous, isn't it? But there's a lot of people living like that today. They don't know God. They don't want to know God. They don't care who God is. They definitely don't want to obey him. Listen, please do not live your life like Pharaoh asking, who is God and why should I obey him? You'll find out one day. 
You'll find out exactly who God is and why you should obey him. But it may be too late. Because when Jesus comes again, every knee will bow and confess his lordship. This universe will know who Jesus is. And you can trust him now and enjoy forgiveness and enjoy eternal life. Or you can choose to harden your heart like Pharaoh and you can be stubborn. You'll find out who God is. It'll just be a little bit, we'll say the hard way. But that's what Pharaoh's going to choose. He's going to find out who Yahweh is. Over the next nine months, Yahweh will reveal himself and his power to this measly man. But this measly man still thinks he's strong. And so to start this whole situation, he makes life more miserable for the Israelites by telling the foreman and the taskmasters to keep the building quota the same, but make them get their own materials, which is really foolish if you want a lot of work to be done, but that's a whole other story. Pharaoh and the Egyptians viewed Moses' demand to release them and let them go as proof that they're not working them hard enough. All right, let's put them to work. And so God delivered, uh, God sent Moses to deliver the people, but what ended up happening was the people's lives got worse. So look at verse 22 of chapter 5 on into chapter 6. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. <laughs> verse six, or chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he'll send them out, and with a strong hand he'll drive them out of this land. God then encouraged Moses and reaffirmed the promise. Moses then relayed that to the people. And then look down at verse 9, chapter 6, verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. That's a really sad verse. And I know we know the outcome of this story. So we're looking back with, you know, a different lens than they had. But just consider how bad your life has to be to where you reach the point that spiritual truths do not encourage you. Because that's where the Israelites were. They didn't listen because their lives were too harsh and bitter. I'm not picking on them. I wasn't in that, I wasn't in that situation. But please don't ever feel like your life is so awful that you can't be encouraged by God's promises. Because they're true. God's word is the source of ultimate encouragement for you. Now, sadly, these people didn't listen to Moses, which discouraged him again. Um, and then he complained to God. Why would Pharaoh listen to him if his own people won't even listen to him? And at the end of verse 13, you can see there that God charged him and Aaron to bring the people out. Okay, <laughs> you're going to do this. Still at the very end of chapter 6, Moses questioned again why Pharaoh would listen to him, which is ironic because when you move into chapter 7, God tells Moses he's right. You're right. Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. Look at the, uh, verse 3 and 4 of chapter 7. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. 
Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Not to chase a rabbit too far, but whether people listen or not, God's word needs to be preached. I'll just leave it at that. The next time Moses stood before Pharaoh, Pharaoh demanded a sign. So Moses threw his staff on the ground. It became a serpent. Pharaoh called his magicians. And in verse 11, you can look down there in verse 11. Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. There's some interesting scholarly debate about what these magicians do in the next kind of several chapters. Um, some believe that they used true black magic and sorcery to do this. Uh, others believe they used an ancient Egyptian trick to uh, sort of what we would call paralyze a cobra. Have you ever gone bass fishing? And when you take the hook out of its mouth, you stick your thumb in there and it's just, that fish is kind of frozen. Uh, some people think the Egyptians could sort of know, know how to put their thumb on a cobra's neck and just sort of, <laughs> and so when they throw that down, of course it looks like a cobra because that's what it was. I don't know if it matters. Uh, there is true evil power in this world. And there's also a lot of charlatans who use smoke and mirrors to deceive people. It, it really doesn't matter here. What matters is that these men that we know from the New Testament are called Janus and Jambres. These men are doing things to oppose Moses and Aaron and God. And that's going to add to Pharaoh's heart being hardened, which is exactly what God predicted. So Pharaoh, even with this sign that Moses um, does, he refused to let Israel go. And so God is going to unleash the disasters. And the first plague uh, involved the waters of Egypt turning to blood. Look at verse 20 of chapter 7. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up, uh, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, verse 23, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. The Nile River was the basis of life for the Egyptians. It's why Egypt was such a thriving ancient community. Not, community is not even the right word. The kingdom. Because of the Nile River. It was where their water came from, their main source of water, their main source of fishing and all sorts of things. It was life for them. And so they worshipped several gods and goddesses associated with the Nile River. So by turning the waters of the Nile to blood, God is specifically attacking these false gods and goddesses that they think are over the, the Nile River. Some of these false gods are called uh, Hopi, Isis, and Kanum. And if you had that handout in the uh, bulletin this morning, you can kind of follow along and it shows what false gods may have been attacked with these different disasters. 
Even these gods and goddesses couldn't protect their own property from anything Yahweh wanted to do. Somehow Pharaoh's magicians replicated this act. And I don't really know how they did it, but I've always wondered why they didn't reverse it. I mean, if you're really that powerful, turn the blood back to water and help us out. But they can't do that. But Pharaoh's heart remained hardened anyway. So chapter 8 begins with the second disaster. Look at the first two verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Look at verse 6. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Now the irony with this plague is that the ancient Egyptians refused to kill frogs because their goddess of birth, Hecate, was depicted with the head of a frog. So as these frogs just absolutely swarm the land, there's really nothing they can do because these are sacred amphibians. These are, these are holy frogs. I mean, we dare not do the, you know. Well, the magicians played the copycat game again, which is just hilarious to me because they just made it worse somehow. And then when Pharaoh finally had enough, he called for Moses and Aaron to end this. Look at verse 9 and 10 of chapter 8. Verse 9, Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your house and left, uh, be left only in the Nile. Look at the first part of verse 10. And he said tomorrow, I've never understood why Pharaoh answered that way. Why would you not tell Moses, right now take the frogs away? As soon as you leave, Please ask your God to take the frogs away. He said tomorrow. There's an old hilarious story. And from what I've been told, it's a true story about students at the seminary going to fill in at the same church for several weeks. And each seminary student preached a sermon here from Exodus 8 entitled One More Night with the Frogs. And eventually the church called the seminary and said, we need someone to fill in again this week, but please tell them not to preach about the frogs again. <laughs> we don't want one more sermon with the frogs. <laughs> Pharaoh still refused to let the people go once the frogs were kind of uh, done away with. So after the frogs came gnats. Look at chapter 8, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he said, uh, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This was likely a judgment specifically uh, attacking maybe two of Egypt's gods, Set and Geb, God of the desert and God of the earth. 
the God of Israel could strike the earth and make the desert turn into gnats if he wanted to. Some translate it as lice. Um, it's, it's an obscure Hebrew word. It's hard for us to tell exactly what kind of insect this was. Some say lice, gnats, mosquitoes. It's definitely some sort of biting insect. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where, you know, mosquitoes or, you know, biting horse flies or something are just, oh, it's brutal, isn't it? It's so annoying and it's terrible, but the annoyance and the brutality are not the point here with this one. We're not really told much about it. What we're told about more is in verse 19, this time the magicians cannot replicate it and they tell Pharaoh something bigger is happening here. This is the finger of God. Unfortunately, Pharaoh doesn't care. His heart remained hardened. So we move on to the fourth plague, which was uh, swarms of flies. And this disaster would have proved Yahweh's power over the false god Kephri, who was represented with a, a fly or a beetle. So look down at verse um, 22. But on that day, and this is when he would send the swarms of flies, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I'm the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this, uh, this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. Uh, uh, throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. God is so powerful that he can send a disaster to a land while completely shielding a region from it. This would just be another sign to Pharaoh about what is happening here, this division that God put between Egypt and Israel. I think it would have been neat to see what that looked like. Have you ever seen those cartoons where there's two people standing there and there's rain on one guy and the other guy's standing in the sun and, you know, there's just this division right here. I don't know what it looked like, but it would have been pretty neat to see where there's swarms of flies here and then all of a sudden there's, there's not even any buzzing around at all over here. God can do that if he wants. After this, Pharaoh's heart seemed to soften a bit, but once God sent the flies away, you know, once there's a little bit of a break, look at verse 32. 832. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. You know, once the flies are gone, okay, we're, we're back to normal. We're okay. So we move into chapter 9 for the fifth plague. And it involved a disease upon the livestock. Uh, and it killed a lot of the animals in Egypt. This would have humiliated one of their false goddesses named Hathor because uh, she was depicted with the head of a cow. So if the cows start dying, why is our... Why is our cow goddess not helping out here? Where is, where is Hathor? Where is her power here? Yahweh's obviously helping his people. Because look at chapter 9, verse 6. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Yahweh's obviously helping his people. Where are our gods and goddesses at? Well, after all this devastation, Pharaoh remained arrogant. He remained stubborn. He refused to let the Israelites go. So we move on to the sixth plague, which was boils coming upon, uh, coming upon the people and whatever of the animals had survived the, the, that fifth plague. 
And how this happened was that Moses took a handful of soot and he tossed it in the air in front of Pharaoh. And this soot became this, this dust that, that covered Egypt and infected them with these painful boils and sores. There's something impressive and important about this plague that we're told. And it's with the magicians. Previously, they, they sort of faked or, or mimicked these plagues. Then it got to a point where they said, oh, we, we can't do this anymore. This, this is the finger of God. Now we reach an even more uh, further point. Look at 11, 9, 11, and 12. Well, this time the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So now we've reached a point where the most powerful men in Egypt cannot even stand in the presence of God's servants because God has infected them with these boils. But God hardens Pharaoh's heart as he predicted that he would. And so we turn to the seventh plague, which is a mighty hailstorm like this world has never seen. Look at chapter 9. Let's read verse 17 through 26. And I want you to specifically pay attention in these verses. As God is detailing how uh, disastrous this judgment is going to be, notice the hope and the mercy that he actually offers. Look at 917. He tells Pharaoh, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves, uh, hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven. And the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen where the people of Israel were. Was there no hail? The fact that Yahweh could control this type of storm and command it would have shown the weakness of Nut, the Egyptian goddess of the uh, sky and storms. Um, Osiris is the, the god of crops, and the crops are devastated by this. And there was also uh, Set was thought to be over storms as well. Those false gods could do nothing here. God is the one in control. But... Did you catch God's mercy? He warned them to protect themselves. He told them to bring their animals in, whatever animals were still surviving. Bring them in. Bring your servants. Get your family inside. This is going to be devastating. And we were told specifically that some did. But some didn't. 
You say, after all of this, this was the seventh disaster. After everything that had happened, how could you not fear and respect what Moses was saying and what the God of Israel was predicting? We could ask the same question today, couldn't we? How can you stare at the wonders of this universe and stare at the complexities of life? Read what the Bible says, listen to the life of Jesus and not fear God and trust him. Men love darkness rather than light. That's what John 3 says. So there were some Egyptians who at least by this point were beginning to trust God's word. We'll say a little bit more about that in here in a little bit. But once God calmed this storm, Pharaoh hardened his heart again. So chapter 10 begins with the next plague, the eighth one, which was swarms of locusts. Look at chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. 1014, the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never uh, been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Any crop that had survived thus far was destroyed by the locusts. There would be no harvest in Egypt that year, which is ironic to me because Joseph, hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, had saved Egypt from a famine, and now there's going to be another famine in Egypt for a different reason. This would have demonstrated Yahweh's power over some of those same Egyptian false gods as before, the god of the crops and different things like that. Well, this time in verse 17, Pharaoh begged Moses to remove this death from me. And so when God swept the locusts away in his mercy, though, um, he hardened Pharaoh's heart in verse 20 so that he would not yet let the people go. So the next plague begins. It's the ninth one, and it was a darkness so deep. Look in verse 21. It's a darkness so deep that the end of the verse says it's a darkness to be felt. And it's a darkness that covered Egypt for three days. And we, we read the verses. I'll summarize it. It's so pitch dark that nobody could see anybody else. And you didn't, you didn't go anywhere. Absolute pitch black darkness, which would have made Ray, their sun god, and the chief of their pantheon look like an absolute powerless fool. Where is our sun god? So at this point... Roughly nine months of just absolute devastation has, has passed in Egypt. It was demolished. And yet, instead of yielding and, and letting the people go, Pharaoh actually tells Moses, the next time I see you, I'll kill you. There's some sad irony in Pharaoh threatening Moses with death. Because as you know, the 10th plague is going to be death of the firstborn. There would be death of the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt on man and beast. But we're told pretty emphatically that there would be a great distinction between Egypt and Israel and that absolutely no harm at all would come upon the Israelites. But this was not because they were better than the Egyptians. 
It wasn't because they deserved anything more than the Egyptians. God made a distinction between these two groups because of his grace and because of his mercy, and because the Israelites believed and obeyed. So in chapter 12, we have the very famous feast that we call the Passover, detailed for the first time in history. And what the people of Israel were told to do in order to be spared from this, from this death plague was to take a blameless male lamb and kill him and to take his blood and smear it around their door frames. And when this destroyer came into Egypt that night, as we sang earlier, he would see the blood and pass over that house. Look at God's words in chapter 12, verse 12 through 13. Chapter 12, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let's go ahead and jump down to verse 28. The people of Israel believe Moses and Aaron, and they do exactly what God commanded them. Verse 28 reads, Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. <laughs> This final and extreme act of judgment proved that Yahweh is the only life-giving and powerful God whatsoever. The false goddess Isis, or Isis, who was thought to be protector of children, was shown to be completely powerless that night. Pharaoh, who was believed to be the embodiment of a god named Horus, could not protect his own firstborn. Even he was forced to, to deal with the death of his firstborn. I think we could say, say quite simply that if you reject God in this life, you will only face death, death. Because God is life. So with nothing but death staring him in the face after 10 disasters over nine months that have just destroyed his kingdom, and his family, Pharaoh finally sent the Israelites away. He's so ready for this to be over with that he called them by night. It's not one more night with the frogs anymore. It's get out of here right now. A little bit different. We didn't read this, but the subsequent verses, the rest of the Egyptians are so ready to be rid of the Israelites that they give them treasure. Get out of here. Take our jewels. Take our gold. 
Take our silver. We don't care. Just leave. And so this group that was harshly enslaved is now being paid great amounts to leave. But look at chapter 12, verse 37 and 38. There's something amazing here. It's not just Israelites that leave. This is one of the best parts of the whole story. Verse 37, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Now, it's amazing that this family that was about 70 people in about 400 years is now maybe 200, uh, maybe 2 million. We've got 600,000 males. We can do the math and ha you know, have a pretty good guess on how many people this is. But what's more amazing than their population is what we find in verse 38 about this mixed multitude. It's not just Israelites that leave Egypt. There are other non-Jewish people who have turned to Yahweh. Egyptians and any other groups in the area, that, that people who have now seen God's power and have been humbled by Him, they too want to serve the all-powerful God. They want to be part of the people who serve Him. So they're leaving too. We're coming with you. It reminds me a lot of the story of Ruth. When Naomi goes back to Israel... And she told her daughters-in-law to stay behind and Ruth just simply would not. And she said, your people will be my people and your God, my God. I want Yahweh. So there are Egyptians leaving because they trust Yahweh. There are who knows how many different groups are now leaving. And again, it's one of the best parts of the whole story because it reminds us that as, as harsh as these judgments were, and by harsh, I don't mean God was wrong in bringing them, but they were severe. But as harsh as they were, God mercifully provided a way out to anyone who would take it. Amen. All you had to do was believe. Nobody was forced to face this judgment. Mercy was offered. Everyone who would humble himself or herself before Yahweh and would trust him, whether that was a Jew or an Egyptian, was saved and delivered. Now we'll come back to that in a minute, but just for the purpose of our Ten Commandments study and our, you know, lead up to the mountain, this story helps us realize again God's love and care for his people. It's pretty obvious as he keeps the Abrahamic covenant here by cursing those who cursed Abraham's children, even by making a distinction between Goshen and Egypt and shielding his people from these disasters, uh, ultimately, you know, redeeming them completely from this slavery. God clearly loves these people. He clearly desires what's best for them, clearly desires their freedom. He wants them to have better lives. So when we get to Mount Sinai in a couple of weeks and God issues the commandments, he does so as a loving, caring, freedom-giving God. Not as a God who wants to shackle them down again. That's not what the commandments were about. He just set them free. Which is one of the just best applications for you and I today here. When we think about our own lives 
Will you trust this loving and caring and freedom-giving God in your life? Because we're just like the Egyptians in that we deserve judgment. We're sinful people who do wrong things. We have wrong thoughts. And half the time we do right things, we do it for the wrong reason. Very famously in Romans 3.23, Paul wrote, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God is still the judge of this world. Okay, when the, when the disaster stopped in Egypt, God didn't step down from his throne. He is still the judge. If you remember in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul wrote that when Jesus comes again and he is revealed from heaven, that it will be in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And Paul wrote, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. God's judgment's coming. Nobody can change that. But he has provided a merciful way of escape through the blood of Jesus Christ. In the midst of destructive judgment, God will deliver all who trust him. When the Jews killed their lambs that final night in Egypt and they smeared the blood over their doorposts and door frames, there was nothing magic about that blood. There's no power in that. It was in their faith and their obedience. But that blood and those lambs foreshadowed the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would take away the sin of the world. His blood has power. When God's judgment comes, the only way to be spared is to be washed in his blood. Just like then in ancient Egypt, if you'll trust God and you'll by faith smear Jesus' blood on your heart, you'll trust in him, he'll set you free. He'll deliver you from judgment. Not because you're better than anybody else, but because you trusted him. He gets the glory. If Jesus Christ is not your personal savior today, as the Holy Spirit convicts your heart, you, you repent. Don't harden your heart like Pharaoh and just be so stubborn. Humble yourself before the almighty judge and trust him and he'll forgive you. He'll give you life. And imagine the joys in eternity to be part of that mixed multitude of countless believers throughout the ages praising him forever. Let's stand. Let's pray as we prepare for an invitation. Father, we went through this story so quickly this morning and I pray that the, the speed in which we, we looked at it and learned from it does not take away our awe of who you are and how powerful you are. You are the judge, but we pray for mercy, Lord, because of Jesus. And I pray that if there's someone here today who needs to make the decision to trust Jesus, that they would do so. We're thankful for the, for the blood of Christ 
and for your love, Lord. Help us to be good servants. Help us to use the freedom you've given us for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.